Dear guests of the Female Guides Requested Podcast, Happy Wednesday and Happy New Year of 2024. This is Ting Ting from Las Vegas. I'm very excited to announce a new series Spencer Hoffman and I are creating, which we call Everything SPI. SPI stands for Single Pitch Instructor and is one of the certification programs the AMGA, American Mountain Guides Association, offers. Both Spencer and I are AMGA certified rock guides and SPI providers. We caught taught an SPI course back in October 2023 and found that our teaching style was quite compatible and complementary. Therefore, we decided to do this podcast series to create supplemental material related to the SPI programs. Hopefully, it will help our past and future students and potentially anyone who is thinking to enter the field of climbing instruction. Spencer and I both have deep roots in climbing education. We have over 20 years of field instructing experience and are confident that we can provide valuable insights. We also recognize that the field of climbing instruction is dynamic and we can't possibly know everything. So if you have any questions, feedback, please reach out to us and help us improve. Thank you very much. And now please enjoy the very first episode of Everything SPI with Spencer and Tintin. Hi, Spencer. Hi, Ting Ting. How have you been? I haven't seen you since October. Uh, mostly well. Uh, yeah, busy November and just rolling into the new year. It looks like it's going to be a busy January. So hoping yes. to work a lot. Hopefully I get to come to Vegas and hang out with you. <laughs> Great. Um, it was really nice that we uh, called taught an SPI course in Red mm-hmm. Rock back in October. And yeah. I really enjoy working with you. Me and, too. Yeah. And that was that was when this idea of doing this uh, series with you came from. I just like, wow, I share a lot of common concept and approach with Spencer. And then we also have similar, well, I won't say struggle, uh, but we like to maximize the hands-on technical skill practice during mm. those three days. Um, and a lot of time I found that um, I have to squeeze time out of those talking topics, that, which I call it, which can be pretty important too. Mm-hmm. So, um, and those topics are also challenging to teach. And uh, I found that each of them can take more than say half hour, an hour that I use during the course. Mm-hmm. So. I feel that these could be our chance to talk them more in depth and then also that students have a chance to listen to this at their own pace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With At their own pace and, and without having to waste valuable hands-on time that they would maybe want to get in the field on a, on a course. Yeah. And well, so, I say waste, but you, you know right. what I mean. <laughs> I, I totally know what I mean because like the, the hands-on time you really need us to be right there looking at them give yeah. critical feedback 
But、sure. I think all this talking topic is you improve over a longer term of time.、Mm. So、mm-hmm. sometimes just by talking, it can't really sink in. <clears throat> so this this going to be a series of different episodes. So we're just gonna talk a lot about SPI. And today, I, I think that、uh, I want to talk about professionalism、mm-hmm. and risk management. <laughs> and professionalism and risk management. And I think these are two governing concepts for、mm-hmm. an SPI program or being a guide in general. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll I'll ask you a question first. Okay. So I have my way of. Teaching professionalism, like、mm-hmm. how do you teach professionalism? Yeah, so、uh, most of these topping topics, it, the hard part about these discussions, like you mentioned, is you know, you, you're you're as an instructor or the provider, you end you can end up just kind of droning on for a long time. So so my strategy generally is to try to get folks involved, you know, by asking them questions. I think most people who come into these courses, they have some experience already. Or some sort of background that's relevant to these topping topics. So that's generally where I start. You know, I, just like you're doing with me here, I ask. You know, what what is professionalism to you?、Um, what does that even concept mean? Like, so generally, it's just a discussion about you know definitions. Like, what are some definitions with these topics? Like, you know, what do we mean by professionalism, and why is that relevant here? And that's it's probably a pretty obvious answer.、Uh, but people have you know all come from all different backgrounds in these courses, so.、Um, You know what one person ends up coming up with might be different than somebody else. So, you know, I think that's kind of that's generally where I start.、Um, so you basically ask the definition of professionalism. Totally, yeah. Start with some definitions,、um, and then I obviously end up kind of guiding or steering the conversation in the direction that I feel like makes the most sense. Uh, uh, and then maybe there's some more definitions along the way that sort of come up de- depending on the topic.、Um, But yeah, I mean, what is professionalism? I think that's the starting point. <laughs>、uh, what do we mean by that? And I think you know we, we've talked about at length is sort of what it comes comes down to is you know is is guiding a real job? Is climbing instruction a real job?、Um, and if it is, then th- then workplace etiquette is a part of that discussion, right? So it's like this is a working environment for us, and so we have to have some sort of You know, there's some sort of etiquette that governs how we behave in that space, or or what we do in that space.、Um, and I think that's it, it, pretty. It sounds pretty obvious and simple, but that is maybe a pretty profound concept for some folks when it comes to climbing. You know, I think a lot of people, when they first get into climbing, there's this certain aesthetic, or there's this certain culture. It's different for everybody,、um, but there might be like a, a specific culture that you sort of associate or affiliate climbing with.、Um, and in some ways, when you become a climbing instructor, you try to be a professional in this space. You have to sort of sort of、uh, change that culture, right?、Um, and we have to sort of redefine what it means to be in this space and how we、uh, sort of create a safe culture、um, or a professional culture.、Um, When we're actively working, that's interesting.、Um, well, I think a lot of time because professionalism, well, according to the handbook, is kind of the early topic we have to deliver.
Mm-hmm. And、uh, I experiment different things. So first,、mm. I I do it the first thing of the day one,、mm-hmm. and then I did ask is like, what do people think about professionalism? Like,、mm-hmm. and then maybe rephrase it as like, what do you think is a professional instructor and guide?、Mm-hmm. What do they look like? What do they behave? And all、yeah. that, but I found that a lot of time I got this blank stare. I was wondering whether this question is too big.、Hmm. Yeah, and so then I change it into,、um, well, right now I assume and I think that a guy and an instructor is the real job. So,、mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I ask them, well, it's a job. Then what do you think? The job description is、nice. for a guy or an instructor. So,、yeah. and then we can address whether it's a real job or not. Maybe、mm-hmm. later on, because definitely, my mom still doesn't think it's a real job.、Um, I don't know.、Oh, <laughs> right. If I knew what it was, she would maybe agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, and then I found out if I when I asked them about job description, I'm curious. Like when you ask people about、mm-hmm. professionals and like what what's in their minds of professionals, and what kind of answer do you always get? Do usually? I think yeah. So in my most recent course, I, I pretty much asked exactly that question. We kind of just went around the horn and 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 folks, you know, kind of gave their individual answers. And I think what was ubiquitous is that folks said the biggest part of the job is like managing. Risk,、um, which is totally true,、uh, obviously,、um, and that's a topic that we're going to discuss in and of itself.、Um, but I think ultimately, what what the piece I end up pretty regularly adding in is that there's a customer service aspect to this job that、uh, maybe people don't always recognize. Right. So you know, at the end of the day, we have folks coming to us for a specific goal or, or reason. And it's sort of our job to figure out what that reason is, figure out what their wants and needs are, and to try to cater to those throughout the day.、Um, you know, I think it's these the climbing instructor role. It's it's no longer about you when you're going outside climbing. Like certainly, there's you're going to be involved, obviously,、um, but but it's the, the key piece of the job, in my opinion, is. Is figuring out what it is that your clients want or need, and and catering to those things. Like, you are now a customer. You're offering a service,、um, either for some, you know, maybe it's just getting out and having a fun experience for the day, or maybe it's to try to you know, like the the person or the people are trying to leave that space with proficiencies in a new skill.、Um, uh, so so that's the piece that I think generally I end up. Uh, having to sort of cue people into,、um, but risk management. I mean, that's that's the big answer I typically get. I mean, what are what are things that what are responses you generally get when you ask that question? True.、Um, yeah. So when I ask job description, risk management, almost every single person、yeah. just like,、um, have. In one way or another, but they are talking about the same thing. Just like we manage、mm-hmm. risk. Right. We、yeah. make sure that people don't get hurt.、Uh, we try to create a safe environment. 
and whatever that means. So they all mm -hmm. are in that line. And then, so everybody will hit on that. And then the majority of the group would say, oh, then we want our customers, which is could be students or clients to have a good day. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. then that's a very broad because everybody's good day is a little bit different and, and everybody want a little bit different. It could be a summit, it could be mm -hmm. just uh, instruction, it could be a lot of other things. Right. So, um, but risk management certainly hit it. And most people think about physical risk, just mm -hmm. don't get hurt, I think. Yeah. But we will elaborate that on the risk management discussion. Yeah. And um, but at least they will say what they want the client to have a fun day. Most of them too. Mm -hmm. And then then we decide to talk about. I don't know whether every job that has. Now I have to look up the definition of job. It's like is job <laughs> always associated with some sort of compensation? Um, mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. say the easiest compensation is said money, right? So this is commercial right. activity. So I just assume that money is exchanged so some goods or serve services exchanged mm -hmm. so then as a guide instructor i think we are more in the line of service industry the selling experience mm -hmm. so then we need to think about our product right right so how totally. we can add value to the so first we need to have a good product and then we could potentially add value to the product mm -hmm. um and so so that's that's like my job description. So it's two folds. Just mm -hmm. first we we offer this service in this environment, but this environment requires us to manage risk. Nice. Yeah, that's a great summary there. So then in order to do it professionally, right? So <laughs> so so we now we have a job description. And now we just have to do it professionally. Yeah. Right. So um let's come back a little bit about why a lot of people don't think it's a real job. Mm. What do you think that came from? I mean, I think that, well, obviously cl climbing is a lot of fun, right? It I, is. I, I was just thinking about a lot of fun things like gaming is huge industry right. too. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, it, it's a question that I, ha I have, think I have a hard time a answering i mean it, anything that again my definition of the job anything you receive compensation for um but i think like the reason it's a job in in my opinion is because you know there's a there's a demand and a need for people to develop skills to prevent themselves from get, from getting hurt i mean people are out here people are out here participating in this activity, it's valuable for a lot of different reasons, right? It's a, it's a activity that has value uh, for mental health. I mean, there's a ton, ton of different reasons why I think climbing is valuable. And more than I could probably list here, more than I would maybe even be able to think of, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, whatever those things that, that other people identify, there's, you know, value in this place for is like, you know, people are participating in this activity. And I think we play a role as climate instructors in making sure that, or, or helping to make sure that people don't hurt, hurt themselves or, um, yeah, and that the spaces that we're operating, operating and are taking well care of. I think, I mean, people have been telling me like long time ago, it's more like 
well, before guiding or even ex exist, and people just like maybe some climbers just like, oh, I spend so much time climbing, but I still have to make some money. So then right. they just take people out. So I'll take you on top of this route or peak mm -hmm. and whatever too, so they can make a few bucks. Then to so they have gas money, or food mm -hmm. in their stomach, and then obviously they were not doing it professionally. Right. And then, but I think as a climbing game popularity, then um, it's necessary that we strip. So because nobody really want to app it every single day and then eventually learn how to climb. Right. Mm -hmm. So we kind of facilitate that then. Um, I won't call it a fast track, but then in a very, uh, it's more plus pleasant environment to mm. achieve the goal. Okay. I think I see what you're saying. It, yeah. Yeah. Maybe try to explain to me one more time. <laughs> yes, I'm just saying that a lot of jobs, if I can look at it, it could start as like, oh, there's a this hobby, and then then there's yeah. a need, mm -hmm. and then when there's a need, you provide, and once you provide, you think about how to provide better, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then that's kind of how. I think that I imagine, I don't really know, I'm not the historian here, but that's kind of yeah. how I imagine uh, the guy become a profession, how it become the mm. profession organically. Right. Yeah. Because you just right. like, I'm like struggle, say, ah, oh, you know, I'm struggling about how to be a better climber. Maybe mm -hmm. at some point it's like, oh, I'll just hire a coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in the past, there were not that many coaches. Nowadays, there are a lot right. of coaches. So now right. coaching become, and then once once the needs start, and then, then the more people got into this industry, they started to think about how they are going to do it better. So now with all these co coaches, they have all sorts of interesting, right programs for you, they monitor you, they, they and all, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Right. Way. But anyway, I'm kind of go out of a tangent. And, That's okay. And, <laughs> and, and and I guess I I'm trying to because there's a lot of uh, this question commonly seen in the guiding industry is that people ask, "What do you think the difference between a recreational climber and a guide or an climbing instructor?" Mm -hmm. Like, so there should be a difference here things sure what's your what are your answer do you ask that, that question to your students i think it's definitely that's definitely a question that's come up it's not one that i necessarily always ask um but but yeah i mean and i do think it's kind of a critical part to sort of defining this job and defining professionalism i mean i think uh you know there's a lot of different answers here i think the big ones are uh, you know, how, how we represent, how we're represented, how we represent ourselves, how we represent the sort of companies that we're affiliated with, whether those are our guiding companies or certifying bodies. Um, and then, and then also how we, as people who are being compensated for being at a crag or climbing that day, how ultimately that impacts sort of 
access to those crags or uh, just the general disposition towards climbing as an activity, you know, all together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm losing my train of thought here a little bit, but I think, you know, key difference there is that, you know, this is our job and, and access to crags and like, and ultimately how people think about and view climbers, whether those are land managers or just general population, that plays an impact on whether or not we're able to continue to work. Um, but, but it also, it plays an impact in whether or not these spaces where we recreate, we can still ha have availability to them. So, I mean, that's a big difference. It's like, as a guide, as an instructor, you, you play a role in how the general public views this activity uh, and how land managers view this activity. So I think, you know, if, if you're out at a cliff and you're, you know, demonstrating some skill or technique that's, you know, pretty obviously unsafe or, or um, not maybe even, not, you know, far from best practice, then that's going to reflect back on the community. Um, so that's a, that's a, I think a big piece, the difference between a recreational climber and an instructor, right? It's like ultimately how your presence and what you choose to do plays a role in the, how people perceive our organizations and how people perceive the sport of climbing in general. Um, so yeah, so what you represent as a guide, um, the consequences are a little bit higher there, I think potentially. I mean, would you agree with that? I was... I would agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess as a recreational client, I do still go climbing myself. That sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I definitely feel less. Uh, I just want to go out and have fun. Right. And then my partner, I don't have to think. I mean, if my, I know my partner is competent. Say if I go climbing with you, I'm not gonna worry about that. Oh, I need to take care of your well-being and stuff, yeah. right? So right. definitely, uh, the pressure is different. About representation, um, mm. that is also true because that remind me, in the past, that nobody would when I guide. And nobody think I was a guide. I don't know whether it's because I don't look like a guy or just because people don't expect Asian woman a guide. Mm. So that could play a role too. But now um, people very quickly identify when I show out the crack, people quickly identify. It's like, oh, she's the guide. And I wasn't sure. Hopefully I was doing the right thing. But... <laughs> <laughs> And is but, that because you were like brandishing big logos or just because of the way you're interacting with your participants and other people or? I think it it's definitely like... the way that I present myself, just mm -hmm. like, okay. Yeah. Um, telling people just like, if I have a big group, then I definitely have a staging area and trying to not interfere with other group. I'll talk to other guided group of recreational climbers. So then we all share this place happily in harmony and and all sorts of stuff. And then definitely, I mean, well, recreational climate to I pay attention to leave no trace and then, mm -hmm. um, and also try to just like you say, do things since the best practice. But the things right. I found that because I guide so much that also like when I do my personal climbing, I'm still doing the best practice. Does that make sense? 
Totally. So even though I'm not representing, don't think I'm representing anything, but it's just tripled down to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the side effect of becoming an instructor is that I think regardless of whether or not you're actively guiding that day, it's like you, you still are subject to some sort of scrutiny, right? The standard is still there, I think, to some degree. Um, the other day, I also have the same feeling. It's not like I just like, wow, this person looks like a guide. Hmm. And, uh, and mm -hmm. I, I don't want to judge people by looking, No. right? Sure. But somehow, I don't think it's the appearance, but this persona. Hmm. Okay. Right? And I was just like, yeah, that person is not a guide. <laughs> <laughs> or doesn't act as a, as a guide. So, so I, I right. can tell that too. I don't know whether, because I work in this industry for so long. Or, Yeah. but can you just by look, then, or No. you need, okay. I, I want to say, <laughs> so yes. I want to say I'm afraid of that a little Right. bit because I, I don't want to label anybody. I think Exactly. like, you know, maybe, uh, maybe somebody is just not quite as far along in their journey to being like a high quality instructor or guide. It, Mm you know,
and it, yeah, I mean, it might look different for, for different people. Um, generally I don't wear leggings, right. Uh, but they might work for somebody else just like normal pants work for me. So that's, I mean, I don't know if that's the best example. Um, but yeah, I think that's the, that's the hard and fast line for me. It's like, it, like, how is this contributing to risk management through the day? What you're choosing to wear, what you're choosing to use. And, and we're going to get into risk management more. Maybe we go ahead and start to talk about that a little bit, but you know, there are things that like, sometimes there are things that are, so it's like harder to tell that they actually are playing a role in your risk management. Right. Um, so it's like, you know, if I have a cam that is, you know, a little bit crooked, right. Or bent or the trigger wires bent, then maybe there's not, maybe that's cam's going to hold me if I fall, maybe it's going to work in my anchor still. Um, Oh, nice cat. Ting ting. <laughs> but but what is that suggesting, right? That like I'm using gear uh, or, you know, like maybe I pull out a sling that's was manufactured in 1985. <laughs> maybe it never got used and it's still totally capable of holding a fall. And if we were to like actually weight test it, it's probably, it's probably strong enough. If we were to actually pull it till it failed. It's probably is strong enough. Um, but, but, but we don't but think if... probably as said. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and what does it mean that we're operating that far outside of an, our industry standard, our manufacturer's recommendations? Um, so, so that's my hard and fast line. I mean, are there other things that come to mind for you? Yeah. Um, and definitely just to clarify, just that when I say, look, obvious is not yeah. like the race or, uh, how they dress, but in a way, sure. of course you want to dress for for that day, mm -hmm. like, right, function wise, right? right? I'm not going in the desert with 10 top that, <laughs> uh, right. so, but I just think that could, could be a persona that just like, wow, this person is really doing his job or her job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So right. I, I, I totally agree <clears throat> with you. And I think, um, I think this is like a good discussion that, uh, because I'm still debating, like, I'm curious, like, when you present this topic, did the thought cross your mind? Just like, am I right now represent professionalism right now in front of my students? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're actively being scrutinized when we t teach these topics, hopefully, right? I want my students to be thinking critically about the things that I'm saying. Uh, and that uh, something that goes with that is like, you know, obviously putting me under the lens, putting me under the microscope. Um, I try to rep my, represent myself well by, you know, wearing clothing that I feel is appropriate for the day in terms of functionality. Um, and I think, you know, the language that I choose to use, obviously, um, is that contributing to a safe emotional and social space? Um, and then obviously, yeah, is it, is it effectively... It, helping me effectively do my job, right? Um, you know, am I offering the best product by having, you know, clear, succinct language or, uh, you know, 
do I have a clear idea about when it's time for me to be really directive with my language, right? So like you use the terminology guidelines a lot. It's like, am I effectively demonstrating when it's time for me to be super directive um, by like using my guide voice? Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit, like sort of guide voice, but, um, but you know, they're like, are there other times when I can just try to be in sort of rapport building mode, right? Maybe, you know, I'm asking questions and sort of chatting, um, you know, maybe making a joke or just trying to have fun. Um, and so being able to switch back and forth in between those sort of modes with sort of like my language. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, sure. I'll, I'll elaborate on my guy's voice. Uh, <laughs> and I actually encourage my student was like, look, every of you, each of you will have your own style once you yeah. go in guiding this industry. And I don't want you to feel that you have to talk in a certain way, because mm -hmm. right, you build your relationship with clients in your unique way. Mm -hmm. um, but I only have one requirement. I'll just say any safety related uh, explanation, instruction, please leave no room for ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's mm. like my biggest thing, just like, hey, look, if you really want this person to do this because you need to manage the risk, then you have to be super clear. Yeah. Don't don't joke on it. Don't just like, oh, you decide what you want to do. Like there's right. a plenty of other times you client, there's so many different ways client choose, but there mm. will be some time that you, because that's your job that is safety related. I say just leave no room for ambiguity. And that's all my only yeah. uh, thing that I told them. And I, I would actually, I welcome people to develop their own guide voice. I think one of the biggest challenges that uh, I experienced in throughout sort of this process of becoming a provider and, and just offering climbing instruction is, is, I mean, the hard part about guide voice is being prepared to, to use it. I think people don't really recognize that instruction, using our instruction, using our guide voice plays a huge role in managing risk and managing people's security. So like we like to think about uh, there's all these big fancy technical systems that we use to try to uh, like manage situations when they arise. Um, but like 90% of the time, maybe even more, my first strategy is to use my instructional skills. And that requires being ready to use that guide voice, like predicting when instances might occur or when a mistake might occur. Um, and and being ready to, yes, get my hands on if I need to, but hopefully generally first, like being ready to use my guide voice, being ready to step in. So that's a skill that's really hard to you know, develop. And we're gonna get more into teaching and teaching to teach hopefully in another that's kind of a topic for another time maybe, but, uh, but, but that's something that I think is, is pretty challenging in this space, in this job, right. Is being prepared to step in using your instructional techniques in critical moments. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think that's a, a very important thing that I probably don't emphasize enough. I did tell people say, Hey, look, your instructor voice or guide voice is a very effective tool for risk management. Yeah. If yeah. you tell them very clear what you want them to do, then 
you never have to do all those assistance skills later. Sure, that totally. That they always are afraid that yeah. they practice like a lot out of their time. But then I just like, look, I just want you to be a good anchor and then have good instructive voice, and you probably never ever have to use those assistance skills. Sure. Yeah, yeah. they're like a last resort. Right, exactly. Just like yeah. when shit hits the fan, right? But one of the, <laughs> our jobs, we don't even want the shit to happen. Right. So, nah, prevention is even. <laughs> prevention is the best strategy. It, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe we can wrap up professionalism now because Great. I'm falling asleep myself. <laughs> <Talking> <laughs> we talked about professionalism. No way. Uh, I'm wide awake. Oh, okay. Great. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to say that I think professionalism is certainly an ongoing thing. And yeah. then when I teach, I told them, say, okay, uh, risk management, we want our clients and students have a good day. And, yeah. and if you do that, your job's well done. And then we right. can always add value later on when we observe more, get more experience, we can be better. Um, but it's, it's, it's like a daunting topic. Just like, oh, I want to represent my community. I want to represent the ANG. I want to represent. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is still, you know, just try the, the base, uh, the, uh, the benchmark, I just like the baseline, yeah. right? So, mm -hmm. uh, start from there and totally. then get better. Great. Yeah. And anything you want to add on that? No, I think uh, I think we've gone on professionalism long enough. I mean, right. there's a ton of other resources out here for folks to, for to, sure. to use. Um, um, and so I don't know, maybe talk about those later or list them somewhere. Um, right. I'm definitely have any have. resources. Um, I can put it on the show notes for sure. Yeah. 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 Or reach out to, mm -hmm. to either one of us. So. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let's talk about uh, risk management. Also another serious topic, risk yeah. management, yep. dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and everybody knows we manage risk. Well, mm -hmm. as a guide, right? Mm -hmm. Because climbing is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Implicitly, implicitly dangerous, explicitly dangerous. Right. There's what's I'm trying to think of the warning sign on the on the uh climb on climbing equipment what do manufacturers put oh, inherent risk it's inherently dangerous <laughs> right right yeah. so um definitely um i would say compared to a lot of outdoor sport that certainly you can manage a lot of risk in climbing but i will always say that um if something goes wrong that usually the consequence is big right so, so mm. we, we we really certainly have to be very mindful about that so right. um let's let's talk about risk management how, how do you teach risk management i mean at least one thing is easy is all the participants all the students knows that's a big part of our job yeah 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 I, I like to start with uh what first comes to folks mind i mean uh i'm trying to get people involved in this topic i'm asking them you know what is risk management to you again sometimes you know definitions are helpful uh so I mean, like, what do we mean by risk in the first place, right? Um, uh, and so generally, I kind of try to start there. And I don't know that I like necessarily state or list a formal definition of risk. Um, you know, people kind of come up with their own sort of ideas and have their own intuition about what that means. Um, but I think, you know, 
at, at the end of the day, usually we land on something like it's, you know, uh, what are the, the, the possible opportunities for like loss or injury? Um, right. So what, what are the things that could go wrong? Um, and I think that generally folks have a really strong intuition about physical risk, right? There are obvious physical risks when it comes to climbing and, and certainly that's paramount in managing, um, in our, uh, and there's all these things we do to manage physical risk. Some of them we've already talked about. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think that's most of what actually we focus on in the course, right? So I, I tend not to talk too much about physical risk in these discussions. I mean, we're here to learn how to manage physical risk through these technical tool, tools, you know, through learning how to teach, through uh, instructing, um, and through developing these like technical proficiencies. Uh, so really what I tend to talk a little bit more about or try to steer the conversation in the direction is talking about what are the other types of risks that exist in this space. Um, and there's a bunch that come to mind. I mean, the big ones for me are sort of physical and, and emotional risk. Those are the two that I'm most focused on throughout the day. Um, but there's some other ones that are sort of hidden uh, or maybe that you wouldn't necessarily expect, right? Social, social risk, which kind of ties into maybe emotional, um, you know, financial risk. Climbing guiding is typically pretty expensive. People have paid you for some sort of outcome throughout the day. So they're taking a financial risk um, by investing in you. Uh, obviously, there are financial risks that you face as well as a guide. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a ton more, I think. Uh, yeah. Are there any other things that you sort of identify early on or where you typically start? Um, yeah, I usually I also like to go with definition and then mm -hmm. uh, you did a good job because usually I define uh, eventually we define like risk means that why risk because the potential loss if totally. something goes south, right? So, um, so, and then if we predict some sort of loss and the loss can be physical loss, could be financial loss, could be emotional stress and stuff, then uh, we need to manage it to minimize the loss mm -hmm. or just eliminate the loss. Yeah. And then a lot of time, uh, another aspect that I would try to say that, okay, uh, what are the potential consequences, which is also loss that because sometimes I would say that we like to say we're using the technical system, we say protecting, right? And, mm. and then sometimes I would, I, I would still choose to protect, even though the chance of the event happening is very slim, but the consequence mm. is too high. Totally. So then I also have to manage that. So basically, I I start with different kind of loss that potentially can happen in this environment we operate in, and also with the people because we provide experience to people. So there will be group dynamic between you and then the students, between among students. Um, so that happens. And then I also talk about um, the chance of event happening and then the consequences if that happens. 
totally. to decide whether we really have to do something mm -hmm. to to make decisions basically yeah because sure. i a lot of time i address out coming back a little bit about the job description i told mm. them that as a guy you actually make a lot of decisions so decision making totally. is a very important part of your job sure. um you, you make decision for yourself you make decision for your part partner even mm -hmm. make decision for your participants yeah so mm -hmm. they all rely on you look at your team team make decision for me and stuff <laughs> yeah so, yeah mm -hmm. so so that's that and then we will go i typically go in the discussion thing and yeah and depends on how um these people come from because these people these students they are all climbers right so then i think they are they're pretty clear they have a good understanding about physical risk. Totally. And then even if something they don't usually see and then you point out to them, it's just like, oh, yeah. Um, because I think with people who don't have a lot of guiding experience, they tend not to think about how their follower is going to fall or how their student is going to pendulum. But then it's kind of like built in in our work. We see we have to see that all the time mm -hmm. but then once you point it oh. out they they see wow there's a physical risk then they yeah. it's very easy for them to register but then i think the emotional risk is also not too hard because everybody is afraid of falling and to a certain mm -hmm. extent mm -hmm. so they can understand the fear yeah yeah but then totally. once it's become like the group management so we will also talk a little bit more about on a later episode about the group management means that, oh, now you manage more than one person and among the group, there will be group dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then there will be some risk there. And then I totally. think that's the thing that it's a little bit harder for them. They can, if they don't, they haven't had any work experience, they'll be a little bit harder for them to comprehend. Right, yeah. Yeah, totally. I think like there are some ways that I use this conversation to sort of set the stage about, you know, the rest of the course when I'm teaching an SPI course uh, or when I'm teaching sort of these sort of topics. And so, you know, for physical risk, there's some there's some subcategories that I might go into to sort of set the stage for how we're going to assess the technical skills that we end up using. Um, and so, yeah, generally talk about likelihood versus consequence, kind of like you mentioned. Um, and then, you know, another thing that generally comes up for me in managing physical risk I mean, is like this discussion, usually we're identifying each different types of risk and talking about how to manage it. So, you know, for physical risk, there's things that are obvious that are, you know, sort of present physical risks, right? So it's like if I place a cam poorly, then that is like an obvious physical risk. Maybe we'd even call it an explicit risk. So this sort of concept or this idea about explicit and implicit risk, which those are kind of big, scary words. And they were sort of big, scary words to me at first when, when I heard this idea of implicit and explicit risk. Um, but I think the more we sort of use that terminolo terminology, define it and talk about what those things mean, the more useful it gets to me. Uh, so, so that's the terminology I use when we're, when I'm assessing uh, technical tools that people are using to manage physical risk in these courses is this idea of explicit versus implicit risk. And that's become really useful language for me through my guiding work and 
and in assessing other people, mentoring other people in these tactical skills. Um, and, and so, yeah, that sort of helps me set the stage for some language that I'm generally going to use throughout the rest of the course. Um, so we, I mean, we can dive in a little bit, that a little bit more, you know, if you yeah. like. Um, yeah. I certainly would like that, uh, but should I, should, are you, uh, trying to finish your, no, okay. I think I, so, so we've talked a lot about this language, implicit, explicit risk. That's language that I generally use in the course. I do think it takes kind of a lot of sort of front loading and explaining. And it sounds like you have maybe a, a more intuitive way of talking about those sort of concepts. Yeah. So, um, actually I learned about those jargons, if I yeah. can call it jargons, implicit risk and explicit risk last mm -hmm. time that I was working with you in October. And then yeah. did you mention that you also learned that from yeah. your SPI training? Um, totally, yeah. Yeah, provider training. I did. I mean. And uh, or, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So yeah, I can't take credit for those concepts. Uh, I don't know the true origin of you know, when uh, right. people started using those in SPI courses. Um, but I first learned about this concept of implicit explicit risk through Ron Funderburg. Um, and Wes Hawkins, who are both SPI providers. Um, and that seems to be language that they were pretty regularly using in their courses. Um, but the more I talk to SPI providers like you, it sounds like these are this is an idea that people are using uh, pretty much across the board universally, um, but just that they're kind of different ways of, exp of uh, explaining or different yeah. terminology that people use. And certainly sometimes nowadays that when I teach and, and actually, um, nowadays I teach SPI, I also try to, if I heard like say so-called new jargons that mm -hmm. I try to introduce that to students, even though I might have a different way to interpret them. Uh, yeah. so then I'll just say, well, in the future, you might work with other providers or other SPI graduates. So then at least you share. Yeah the language, right? The things that we call it the three in one anchor or the backside yeah. anchor. Like when I build anchor, I never think about those no, terms, yeah. right? So it's the, it, but then I'll just say, oh, it's, it's nice to know. So then when you communicate with other people, it's always nice to have a name for a certain right. thing. So, totally. and then when you talk about the implicit and explicit rest that kind of intrigued me. So mm. I just say, huh? And what's the definition? How do you use it in the context, in context? So, um, and then I can, can you, can you ex elaborate on that? Yeah. And then I will add on like my interpretation or how I Absolutely. teach people. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, explicit risk is typically the, the obvious one. So like, you know, uh, I think the best way to, to, to sort of really understand it. So understand these concepts is like, obviously through examples. So for explicit risk, I mean, what we're saying is what are the things that are obviously dangerous about the technical skill that we've employed, right? Um, so, you know, if I've left a carabiner unlocked in a critical place, the explicit risk there, the obvious risk there is that whatever is attached to that carabiner could come off. It could, it could accidentally open and it could come out and that would be obviously bad and dangerous. But there are some implicit risks with that practice as well, right? So uh, there's some things that are sort of hidden or implied, some things that we wouldn't necessarily uh, 
that aren't necessarily obvious in in doing something like leaving a locking carabiner open. So it's like if I leave a locking carabiner open, I could be suggesting to my client or my participant that I am a complacent person, right? And so what sort of what sort of what does that suggest to them about my instructional habits, right? And so what other sort of risks does that create? With that person so that's just one example and there are probably other implicit risks there um, that we could talk about or define it's just that like you know there might be some risks you don't necessarily expect or you don't necessarily uh that aren't necessarily super obvious um and and there's probably better examples i suppose that i use you know generally on the on the course i mean i think yeah uh, do you have any examples that you feel like effectively sort of describe or define those? So there's some common questions that I got from my students, right? So I think one thing that in SPI, we like to see them always close the system. Okay. And then the student would just say, look, I know I have enough rope, Mm -hmm. right? Then two ends reach the ground. I can see two ends reach the ground. Why do I even need a stopper now? on there mm-hmm. and and I usually say that so I don't know whether you categorize this as in, implicit so yeah. uh, I usually say look sorry I need to deal with my cat uh, that's fine okay <laughs> she like to turn off my computer um, so oh. I usually say, <laughs> I usually say that look um, closing system can save lives um, yeah and that's why we want you to always close the system and uh, and I understand that you know the ropes are on the ground, and I mm-hmm. can see I understand totally. the rope on the ground, and I know that it's it's fine if you repel mm-hmm. without closing the system, right? But these require that we both on the same page that there's no because I I've been guiding for a long time. And then, so I can potentially see that's the reasoning, but I say, I can't be sure that's your reasoning because you just told me that, Hey, look, both end on the ground. So I understand your reasoning now, Mm -hmm. but then before you told me this, I have no idea. I just like, is he just never closed the system or he actually knows the rope on the ground. So for me, I told them say, look, Especially when when we instruct, it depends, right? My 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 students are completely new, and then they usually take away something I do with them. Totally. And then, so if I sometimes close the system, sometimes not close the system, then for them, I need to give them the the explanation. But if I somehow don't give them the explanation. What do I want them to take away? Obviously, close the system. So that's why I decide if I don't have time to build in my lesson, then I would just demonstrate that I'm like always close the system. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. I think the piece that's new for a lot of SPIs here is that the actions that they generally take on a day-to-day uh, sort of on, on a just an average day of climbing when you're in the instructional role, those things are now being 
they're being scrutinized or you're, you know, you're under the microscope of whoever it is that you're with that day. And so you have to, yeah, account for the fact that maybe that person is going to go out and try to replicate whatever it is that you've done. And so, yeah, totally. They don't understand that in some situations and maybe even in uh, most situations, it's not a good idea to leave the ends of your rope, you know, untied with knots in a rappel. Um, if they don't understand that, that, this was just a specific setting where that was okay, then that could lead to some, you know, some dangers or some risks for that person. Totally. Yeah. So I often phrase you say, Hey, do I need to have a conversation with you to understand、yeah. what is in your mind that you make that decision? Because that's、right. opaque to me. I can't read your mind. Absolutely. And then, so if you think that way, that, uh, Because we, it's too dangerous for us to make assumption. We just think, oh yeah, they understand why I do that. Actually, they don't, and they usually take away what they see because visual、totally. is pretty strong, right? So that's、right. usually people take away. So I also a lot of time I frame it into like role modeling, too, and、mm -hmm. also when I after I make them practice that anchor, and then first of all, of course, I make sure they build strong. Anchor, solid anchor, and then after that, I start to say you got to simplify this thing because、mm -hmm. I don't want to trace all the lines and spend like a few minutes. It's like okay, this anchor is fine. I want it、right. to be. You go up there, you look at the anchor, good to go. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, I think to elaborate on that example,、uh, something I see pretty commonly on SPI courses or in anchor building clinics is. You know, people want to overbuild anchors, right? They want to place six cams where three would have probably done the job.、Um, and I think explicitly, both of those things are safe, right? Explicitly, six-piece anchor is there's obviously nothing wrong with that as long as the pieces are placed well and they're in good rock. A six-piece anchor is totally explicitly safe. The things that are maybe implied there are that does this person understand what? Like an adequate anchor looks like, and you know why are they overbuilding this anchor, and and some other implicit risks that maybe go with that is like you know now you don't have those other three pieces for whatever else you might need to use them for throughout the day. I mean, so there could be financial implicit risks, right? Maybe it means that now you can't you know rig another climb as quickly as you would have before, and you significantly cut into the amount of time that your participants had you for that day.、Um, so. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example、um, to sort of help drive that idea home for folks between, you know, explicit, implicit risk.、Um, and I think like it plays a big role in the SPI course, plays a big role in the SPI assessment. But then that those concepts, implicit and explicit risk, they play a big role in, you know, your work as well. Like when you're out there working as an SPI.、Um, so certainly, we're looking in SPI exams for. Participants for candidates to account for both of those things, both implicit and explicit risk.、Um, but I think it's a useful tool、uh, for folks in just their day-to-day -day practices when asking themselves, you know, when making decisions out there in the field. Yeah, I never. I actually didn't think about the six-piece anchor. Do you have those implicit risks? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I I still, of course, I told them that you can do it with less, but then、uh, or make it simpler. Right. Yeah. So,、mm -hmm. um, but it, I, yes, go ahead.、Yeah. It, it's become a useful tool for me to sort of justify why maybe I want somebody to choose to do something differently.、Um, you know,、uh, 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. And so, so yeah, I think the terminology is somewhat difficult and there are other ways that folks, um, you know, obviously I don't want to sit there and have this 30 minute conversation about right. what explicit and implicit risk is in the course, just for them to sort of understand, um, the language that I'm going to try to use throughout. But, um, but it does, I think ultimately it is pretty helpful. Um, I see. So. I usually, um, use like role modeling, whether you need a conversation and yeah. then, um, some people use style style. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So like different instructors have different style, you know, so I talked to SPI, another SPI provider re recently and I forget the, there was another where it's like style versus, um, I don't know, safety maybe it's like, so there's things that are obviously, uh, unsafe or safe, right? That's kind of somewhat binary, but then there are other things that are maybe just stylistic, right? Um, okay. so I, it's not exactly, yeah. it's not exactly transferred to implicit, explicit risk, but I think, you know, right. it's, it can, you can kind of tie it in to that. I don't know that's probably not what you were going to say, but. No, I, I never yeah. thought about the style, uh, yeah. cause <clears throat> it's a little bit hard for me to see that anchor building has a style. <laughs> I, I, I just, I Possibly. somehow I can't wrap my head just like, oh, Tintin, oh, this is <laughs> definitely Tintin's anchor. That's Tintin's style. Um, yeah. So once they, I know they can be your anchor, I just like, well, can we make it even simpler? Yeah. Yeah. And totally. then, so more of like, I, I stress because during the SPI course, they typically only build one anchor with all these resources, right? So they mm -hmm. have this static robe and this whole rack. And then I said, well, when you are on the job, that typically is not the case. You probably go mm -hmm. up there, build two or three or even more anchors with all these resources. So you so, need yeah. to plan ahead. Um, but yeah. I never tied it into this risk management there. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah. Right. Um, I think the other part of this is, is, uh, is, so, I mean, there's things that are explicitly implicitly safe. I mean, I think the, <clears throat> the other piece of this is like, often there are a lot of things that are both implicitly and explicitly safe, right? So we end up with, we end up with we, these decisions. We have to face this decision when we're trying to manage physical risk about the, the tool that we ultimately choose to select. Um, and so I think that's another piece to this physical risk management is, you know, like often there are multiple tools. I like to think about these skills that we're teaching and that we're, de that we're, uh, developing in these SPI courses as tools. Right. And, you know, you could use a wrench to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, right. That would probably work. Um, but yeah, generally the hammer is the better tool. Right. Uh, so, so. I mean, I think that's a, that's another piece to this is like, you know, there's a, there's often in these courses, folks want to do things this particular way because I don't know, they become emotionally tied to like just building a quad everywhere. Right. And so, so yeah, certainly that's a tool that could work. Um, but is it the best tool for this, you know, actual setting and this actual application? So thinking about things in a more situational way, as opposed to like a principled way, I think is another, is another thing that often comes up when we talk about managing physical risk, bit of a category change there, but, uh, yeah, 
but I understand. I kind of like that your phrases like, okay, we give you some tools for, for better decision making. Yeah. Right. So you, say, for example, like for me, implicit and explicit rest is too jargon. I, right now, are not yeah. the best tools for me because yeah, yeah. I feel like I spend too much time trying to categorize that. Yeah, but yeah. then uh, I feel like right now, my intuition actually serving a little bit better. And, mm. <laughs> but then for mm -hmm. you, obviously, you, you found that oh, it's actually a good tool for you, for your teaching, maybe for your own decision making. Yeah. But then I can, I'm I'm still experiment on this thing, just like I still present it to my students because it could be a good tool, you know, and I encourage them to explore all their tools because yeah. they always just say, hey, Tintin, do you want me to use this tool on this certain situation? I said, you decide, I'm yeah. not gonna tell you. Right. right. And then you decide, you tell me your decision making process. And that's actually what I really want to know. Yeah, totally. So, so I, I, I think it's cool that and I even told them you don't even have to remember all these jargons as long as you get the things done in a safe and efficient way, then I'm totally happy with that. Totally. Yeah. So but it's, it's kind of like interesting to to think about that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fun to think about. Uh, hopefully other people think it's fun to listen to us think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, the implicit and then can, can you give me other example that you found that really beneficial than doing your teaching using those jargons? Uh, yeah, I think um, an, another example where that seems super uh, useful is so, uh, you know, when I teach people the BHK and I don't always talk about implicit explicit risk here, but when we teach people the BHK, like this is just one example of a place where I want to see an instructor both account for explicit and implicit risk. So when we tie BHK, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you've tied the knot correctly, it's just a normal overhand, right? And most of the knots we tie, whether it's a figure eight or an overhand, they have some sort of tail, right? That we hope doesn't slip through the knot. And if we've tied the knot correctly, if we've dressed it, if we've stressed it, if it has an adequate amount of tail, we don't have to worry about the tail slipping through the knot. And the BHK is no different in that way. So explicitly leaving that tail out. And for folks who aren't familiar with the BHK in the, in this, uh, at the time of this podcast, you know, maybe look up a video or a picture of the knot, um, or just wait to be in your SPI course and maybe hopefully you'll learn a little bit more about it. Um, but if we leave the tail unclipped, unincorporated into the knot in some way, explicitly it's probably fine it's just a normal overhand with tail as long as the knot is dressed dress an adequate tail we don't have to worry about it implicitly what we have to worry about is confusing that knot or somebody else trying to replicate tying that knot with a slip knot which is like a super common knot it looks exactly like a bhk um, when we've when we tied it um, in the end um, some sort of overhand knot at the end there's two loops at what we would call the quote unquote master point there's two legs coming out of the back of it and there's an extra loop that's sort of like the tail of the bhk uh coming out of the back side of the slip knot so they look exactly the same but if i don't incorporate that tail into the knot of course it can fail right the tail will slip through my carabiners come off the end and my anchor doesn't work right um so there's some 
implicit risks we ask instructors to account for when they tie BHK. We say, please incorporate the tail into the knot in some way, either by clipping it into the master point or flipping it over or tying a stop or not behind the knot in order to account for common human error, right? Accidentally tying a slip knot. And, and you know, that example, it's pretty close home to me. I was, you know, I was actually at a crag when a person tried to tie uh, a BHK accidentally tied a slip knot, didn't incorporate the tail into the knot, and it led to a, a nearby ground fall. And it, um, you know, it was like an incident that, you know, the group that I was with ended up having to deal with and help take care of. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's one sort of example. I think like that's probably one a lot of providers and instructors are already pretty familiar with, but didn't really even, uh, didn't necessarily, had necessarily tied that language into mm. it. Yeah. Um, that's a, actually a good story because I got asked on that mm. question a lot. I just like, I have this long tail, right? Yeah. And uh, um, I think that's a, a, a good answer because originally I just like, you know, I always tie my overhand overhand. Yeah. And I have adequate tail. I never really super worried. And I told them that if tied not correctly, you have an adequate tail. I don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly after instructing so this many years, not saying that I see a whole lot, but I did see people, I just say, uh, that's not overhand, that's a slip knot. I see people mm -hmm. do that. Happens and quite a bit. Yeah. So it's surprisingly that, you know, if I'm just in my own world, I just say, I would never tie slip knot if I want yeah. to tie overhand, but it turns out that. I mean, obviously, I'm not judging them because I I make some other stupid sure. error myself too. But it's just seem kind of yeah. it's actually out there, too. Yeah, yeah. and definitely. Huh. Well, that that that's it. That's a good story. Now I have a better answer for that because there you I go. just like, yeah, you know, um, it's uh, yeah. So I'm gonna copy your story. Cool. That's a yeah, nice feel good, free to use that. Another uh, that's a benefit of like discussing things yeah. with other guide and mm -hmm. instructor. Yeah, and being open to, to when you've seen mistakes occur, when you've made mistakes, um, you know, we can learn from each other's examples, so. Right. And you know what, Spencer, I think I'm gonna wrap this up. I cool. know that we haven't talked about the social emotional risk, but yeah. I think we can incorporate into the group management. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I would because... love to. Risk management is actually very prevalent. Everything that I it's going to be hard to talk about any of these other topics without going back to it. So my yeah. guess is that it, those things come up. <clears throat> yeah. So um, just so our listener know that we uh, have planned to talk about group management and site selection, and also um, talking about how to teach, which is a very big part as a because SPS stands for single pitch instructor. So instructing is a big part, and I found teach how to teach is pretty tough too. Yeah. And then we will have more core topics coming up. So I'm trying to keep this within an hour. So people don't yeah. fall asleep. We're somewhere then. around there. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Ting Ting. 